This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Last week, we were in the herbs. This week, we move to the rest of the food pantry, and I mean the rest, from peanuts to beans to rice, potatoes to sesame. Bree Arthur wants us to plant more food everywhere, from around the base of our foundation planting shrubs to the far reaches of whatever our properties might be. Bree joins us today from her home and foodscaped garden in North Carolina. Welcome, Bree. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. So you are an enthusiastic advocate for all kinds of gardening, but very specifically for edible gardening that is incorporated and manifested in some interesting and revolutionary, shall we say, ways, Brie. Describe for people what what you do with plants and some of your uh, strongest advocacy points. Well, you know, I studied landscape design. So I look at this world from a designer's perspective. But in my heart, I'm a plant nerd and I like collecting plants. And I think there are interesting plants, whether they're, you know, an ornamental or something you eat or something that attracts pollinators or something that cleans stormwater. And to me, our landscapes offer this incredible opportunity that hasn't really been entirely tapped into. I mean, I think you can go anywhere in this country and find boring landscapes that don't really seem to provide any function. And we have all this land that's just waiting for someone to, you know, just give it a little purpose so that it can help sustain communities and improve the environment that we live in. So as a horticulture professional, I want to be relevant. And to me, those are the points that make growing plants relevant. And specifically when you say there's all this land waiting to have a purpose, what is that land very specifically, Brie? Well, you know, all the developed areas. So Mm. we have, you know, office parks and schools and churches and municipal buildings. And Lord knows we have, you know, an endless sprawling suburban landscape that is very underutilized. And I live in the suburbs. I live in one of those neighborhoods where I see bad planting decisions being made by (laughs) professional landscapers Mm. and I want to fix it. And I want homeowners to understand the joy that you get from growing plants so that they'll also take an active interest and become more engaged in something that right now might feel like a chore to them to maintain their boring landscape. But gosh, you know, you plant something that you get excited about and all of a sudden your perspective is different. Yeah, very different. And A lot of this is outlined in your first book, The Foodscape Revolution, Finding a Better Way to Make Space for Food and Beauty in Your Garden. And I think it's going to be continued in your second book about growing interesting grains, which I'm excited to hear more about. Before we dive into those, Brie, tell us where you live, where you garden, and then take us back a little bit to where you were born and raised and how you became a plant nerd. (laughs) Well, I have resided in central North Carolina, uh, just outside of Raleigh, for 17 years. 
I came here originally as an intern to work at a fantastic estate garden called Montrose. And I really learned some of the most essential aspects to gardening and growing plants and efficient land management when I was an intern uh, working at that big estate. I studied landscape design at Purdue University and minored in entomology. I, I have a thing for insects. Mm -hmm. And I was so fortunate because I don't think that I would have even known that horticulture was something that you could get a degree in or have a job in if I hadn't been in 4-H as a child. So I grew up in southeastern Michigan, and though we weren't farmers, my parents enrolled me in 4-H, and it was such an important aspect of my childhood. And, you know, some of my greatest friendships were formed through that organization. And extension agents, you know, offered their knowledge to us and opened a whole world. I, I would have never known botanical Latin was something that I cared about mm -hmm. if I hadn't entered Econops Retro into the county fair. You know, <laughs> I, it's, it's funny when you look back, you know, with, with decades of, you know, influence since then. And, and you can literally pinpoint that moment where you were like, I get this. I, I enjoy it. I, mm -hmm. I'm motivated by it. I, I like getting dirty and playing outside and I want to do this for my job. It's, I just would love for every child to be able to at least have exposure to something like that one time, Yeah. just so they aren't afraid and, and so they can become better stewards and appreciate where their food comes from and value what farmers provide and look through the same rose tinted glasses that I wear. When I look and see landscapes and all I see is potential, you know, oh my gosh, we could, we could feed this whole neighborhood if we just, you know, planted something of meaning in some of this open lawn area. Yeah. <laughs> now I want to go back to the 4-H because I just find these early childhood influences and experiences, whether it's the Scouts or 4-H or a family member or, you know, they're so influential. Will you remind listeners what the 4-H's are, Brie? Yes. It's, I actually just recited the 4-H pledge at a recent presentation <laughs> in Maine. Oh, that's and great. It was, you know, it's one of those things that you don't even realize that it's ingrained in your existence, mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's your, your head, your heart, your hands, and your health. And the whole notion of 4-H is, uh, you know, connecting agricultural systems to modern day living, mm -hmm. you know, getting a new generation to appreciate and learn some extremely important life skills, which I worry that we aren't teaching the next generation, simple things like boiling water and understanding how to sow a hem and, you know, putting seeds in the ground and yep. watching something grow. And so 4-H really covers all of that. It's one of the most practical things that a child could be exposed to because the knowledge that you gain is just something that you use every day. Yeah. I think it's that community-born atmosphere of valuing and incorporating these kinds of activities. It doesn't matter if it comes from 4-H or the Scouts or your church or your relatives or, you know, your Waldorf school or, but it's just important that it's there in the air we breathe and the books we read and the water we drink that this 
cultivation of plants and life and health is a normal, should be a normalized part of what it means to live. Exactly. Our society needs it more Mm -hmm. than ever. (laughs) So you have some early influences that I really want to mention and have you talk about a little bit. They might have started as early as your your parents who would have signed you up for something like 4-H. So that's part of the culture there. Uh, but then you had some other influences in terms of other horticulturalists that have led the way in previous generations. And you're kind of picking up that baton in uh, in a new way for your generation and the coming generations and our time now. But Talk about your earliest influences in terms of specific people. Well, Rosalind Creasy is like my hero. She should just always wear capes everywhere (laughs) she goes because she's the most amazing person. Wonder Woman. (laughs) She is. She is. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, I read her book, Edible Landscaping, when I was in 4-H, when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, one of my jobs as a kid growing up, I had to mow three acres of lawn every week, which is extremely wasteful. You know, this was the 80s and 90s. So we weren't talking about carbon footprints like we do now, but Mm -hmm. it's absurd to mow three acres of lawn every week. And I was also having to shear these stupid taxes hedges into uh, rectangles and obelisks. And (laughs) it was just like, this endless task, it, it was, it truly never ended. It, it was something that I really resented because I was really interested in growing vegetables and flowers and, you know, had already developed this understanding that plants can be more than just using gas. Mm-hmm. And when I read her book, I, you know, basically informed my parents that the next time I hedged the bushes, they were hedged, being hedged to the ground. <laughs> I was going to be replacing them with food crops. <laughs> nice. Nice. And what did your parents say? Um, you know, they were a bit bewildered and, um, <laughs> they are, they've always been very encouraging. I think they might've talked me out of doing it to all of them. There were like 60. So that would have been an overwhelming amount of square footage right. to end up managing, but they were very helpful in that we did. We knocked down some of those shrubs in the sunniest areas. And I remember my mom saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe how easy it is to have tomatoes right here, you know, like by a hose, right by where you walk in a door so you actually notice them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, Roz brought out like these very, this practical essence of why you could put food in your landscape and it could still be beautiful, but it makes your experience growing vegetables so much easier, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so as an adult, when I, you know, bought my first house in the subprime market before the economy collapsed, and I was just, you know, I straight up didn't have enough money to be able to pay my bills working as a full-time propagator and grower at a nursery, I at least had the knowledge to be able to grow food for myself and make it so that, you know, my costs at the grocery store were less. Mm -hmm. And I realized in that moment, like, the message that Roz had has been preaching all these years is is more important than ever as we have more economic struggles in our society and you know a bigger population as a whole and now we have these stupid rules with neighborhood HOAs that say what you're allowed to plant where 
And none of them have actually gotten horticultural advice. They've just made these rules without really recognizing that they aren't experts on the topic. And, you know, the notion of an edible landscape is a really great coming together point where we can have beautiful spaces that don't offend your neighbors that also provide something that's super essential. And, you know, it's become my mission now as I've helped people who have an interest in creating an edible landscape, but are afraid of their HOA. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's, yeah, the, the fear factor is an interesting one to me because it's not just fear of the HOA, right? It's fear of the HOA. It's fear of like getting it wrong. It's fear of not knowing how to do it and what's going to happen and it's going to look ugly and people are going to judge us and fear of just how much time and knowledge is required. And one of the things I just so clicked with me in your book was that you don't have to rip up your whole landscape. Like you, you buy this house, you're in the suburbs, you're, you're working full time or you have kids and you just want to do a little something and you can start right where you are. We're exactly. Okay. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, which I tend to do when I get enthusiastic, Brie. (laughs) Uh, So you're, you go to school, you get your degree, you buy your house and you start kind of putting some of these things together. Like it helps your wallet and your landscape to grow your own food. It, It makes you a happier person. It makes you more engaged. It serves the ecology I mean, there are a lot of things it serves. It introduces you to your neighbors. It gets the little kids down the street involved. It, all these things. What, at what point do these all come together for you? And you say, you know what? I am not going to work in this professional landscape job where I am being like led through one of Dante's levels of hell, <laughs> redoing things that don't need doing for no purpose whatsoever. And I'm going to do this. Talk about the beginning catalyst moments for the foodscape revolution, and then we'll get into the book itself. Well, you know, I feel so fortunate in my career journey, and I, I think this is a real testament for how wonderful horticulturalists are in general. I mean, like, from university professors to growers and and communicators, I've had this great these great friendships forged over the last 20 years of my career. And I had been asked to do a program for Growing a Greener World, which is Joe Lample's fantastic gardening show on PBS. Mm -hmm. And it was all about propagating, which was what my career was. I was a propagator of trees, shrubs, rare perennials, I'm, like I said, a plant nerd. So my my professional background was in plants that were maybe not commodity crops, but, <laughs> you know, things the plant nerds sought out. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> when he came to film at my house, Joe was like, oh, my God, you know, I had no idea what you were, what you were actually about. And what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you see pictures on Facebook or whatever, and I wasn't trying to create a movement. I was just being me and I'm an excited person. I like to share pictures and get, you know, share, share experiences with people. And it was because of Joe that I even started to think like, oh, you could do something that isn't in the back of a greenhouse. You, 
maybe you do have knowledge that would be helpful for other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going to the Garden Writers Conference shortly after I actually met my publishers there and they're like the world's most delightful human beings. Uh, actually, I got to meet Roz Creasy for the first time Ooh. at that event. Oh, actually, wow. Joe introduced me to Roz. So it was like, you know, where all the stars align. And, you know, <laughs> it was just one of those moments where you know it's precious and you have to hold on to it and, and value it because you don't get a million of those moments in no, your life. No. And so, uh, you know, it just a whole new world opened up as a result of this amazing and supportive network and who were all very encouraging saying, though I love propagating, it's like my true love. And I love the idea that I have millions of baby plants out in the world, you know, (laughs) but it's great to be able to share just practical gardener to gardener information because we're in a deficit in that of that realm right now. Mm It's amazing how people are afraid to just scatter some seeds and let it happen or, you know, look at that foundation landscape and think I can give myself permission to, you know, grow something that I love to eat right here. So I'm going to, you know, tend to it and I'm going to use it and I'm going to change a habit at the grocery store. You know, like there's there's so many different aspects. That's why horticulture is so awesome. You know, like it doesn't matter what you are passionate about. Plants are somehow impacted by it. It's truly endless. I don't know if that's the case with all hobbies, but I think it is with gardening. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Bree Arthur is all about the creed of the 4-H, heart, head, hands, and health. And she puts it to work in her evangelizing for the idea of a foodscape revolution in your landscape, no matter how scary your HOA might be. We'll be right back for more. Hey, it's Jennifer. Okay, so I'm going to riff off of Bree's quote that said, I would love for every child to have this experience at least once. This statement by Brie was a little nudging reminder from the universe to me about children, about the experience they have by chance and the experiences we curate for them, and the straight-up, undiluted, transformational power of these experiences. This has been an idea in my mind for some years, like many years, maybe since I myself had my first baby girl more than 20 years ago now, and then my second baby girl and how their unstructured hours in the garden and outdoors with me were pure magic, pure education, information, inspiration, and magic for them and for me. This is nature and garden literacy, one of the primary branches of a well-rounded cultural literacy. A few years back, I had an email from someone inquiring about the relationship between children's literature and gardening and nature literacy. And she and I toyed with the idea of an episode of Cultivating Place centered on this. We went back and forth with enthusiasm, but then, I don't know, you know, life. It sometimes has a way of sidetracking you. Recently, though, someone else reached out to me with the name of a children's book that she just couldn't help but feel was the epitome of everything she found comforting, encouraging, and compelling about Cultivating Place. 
and the power of children's literature of all ages to provide us with formative, sometimes even unarticulated, messages about nature, gardening, and stewardship. And this brought it all back in focus for me. I knew the time was right. And I'd love to wrangle you all into this with me. So I'm asking for your help. Could you, would you please take the time to send me an email or a voice memo at cultivatingplace at gmail.com with your all-time favorite children's books. Books that carry a message of meaning about the role and value of nature, gardening, and culture. You can just send the title or send a few thoughts on what this book meant to you, your kids, your grandkids, and how you hold the natural world as valuable in your life. And thank you in advance. I am completely stoked to build a kick-ass gardening and nature children's book bibliography to share out as a great, literate, artistic message of hope and progress forward. Don't forget, send your favorite nature or garden-related children's book title to me by way of email or a short voice memo to cultivatingplace at gmail.com. Think of all the greenly leaping bedtime stories we can fuel with our final cumulative list. Now, back to the messages of hope and foodscape action with Bree Arthur. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Bree Arthur's first book, Foodscape Revolution has one mission, to get everyone seeing potential in their landscape for more food, for yourself, your family, the neighborhood kids, and the neighborhood birds. We're back for more with Bree on how she structured her book and built it based off of concepts she first learned from the legendary Rosalind Creasy, as well as longtime principles of permaculture. Talk about how you structured the foodscape revolution, because I want you to pick up on what you just referred to, that ability for someone to look at their home, see the spaces that were they inherited, whether from, you know, a, a brand new build development installed landscape or whatever the person who lived in this space before them was doing. We tend to, I think, see those areas that are already landscaped as like done and and inviolate somehow like that mulch with that you know foundation shrub like that's done so I don't have to I, I, that is off limits to me so I need to find another place to put what I want to do and you are asking us to kind of erase those preconceived lines that our eyes see and our heads Uh, try to adhere to and say, no, 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 those aren't the boundaries. This is what I want you to do. I want you to use that space. Talk about that. Well, you know, that was also born out of practicality. I was a single woman when I bought my, my house that I first really started to foodscape at, and I didn't want to spray Roundup. And I just didn't have the energy to dig all the grass out, you know, like getting rid of turf and making a new bed is a lot of work. And, you know, like I had a, I had like a Prius, (laughs) I didn't have a pickup truck. So like hauling compost was something that was challenging. And I just realized after 
trying and failing to, you know, create a new bed and like all this weedy grass started coming up through it. And it was just, you know, all the problems that normal people experience when they try to garden for the first time and mm -hmm. can be really just depressing and challenging. And it feels like work. Yeah. I don't like use the W word, but there are some tasks <laughs> that are work, you know, and, and pulling like we, you know, we're in warm season territory here in a warm zone 7B. So we have, you know, common Bermuda grass that's just like, oh gosh, you know, it could probably grow on the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that like the beds that were existing around my house didn't have that because they actually never had grass to begin with, you know, like they shoved those shrubs in when they, you know, sold the house when they first built it. And that ground was actually way easier to cultivate than starting fresh ground. <laughs> and, and so it was then that I was like, well, gosh, you know, I looked around my neighborhood and I'm like, everybody has a strip, you know, maybe three foot wide with shrubs. They're going to get like five times that big, of course. Um, but, you know, we all have this strip right around our house and we all have these funny little island beds where the utilities are and they're out in full sun. So that's, you know, the best spot for you to grow food because it likes better exposure. And then we have all of these like, you know, backyard property berms so that you don't look into one another's yard. And it's like, well, gosh, you know, that's a lot of square footage to be able to grow in if I just take advantage of the open mulch space that's already there. You know, I don't need to remove any of the existing plants, but I also didn't have an ability to bring mulch in. And it's an awful lot of plastic bags to be doing that every year. So I thought, well, I'll just cover up some of that space with my seasonal vegetables and I'll plant plenty of flowers so nobody will know that I'm growing food. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was amazing because we had, you know, it's funny, this was not a fancy neighborhood. And I think sometimes people have a, a misconception that these neighborhoods where you get fines are only really upscale. And what we actually have are a lot that are, you know, sort of starter houses, you know, especially for young families. And those fines are what keep the HOA in business. You know, they would give you a fine for a lot of really dumb things like having your garage door open too long or you know, it was one of those environments where you just felt like you were always going to get tattled on by a neighbor. And I was really nervous and afraid that I would get, you know, it's a $300 fine every time you got it. And I didn't have enough money to grocery shop. So I totally didn't have money to pay my HOA. And they ended up awarding me Yard of the Year. <laughs> Yard of Which, the Year. It came with a $500 gift certificate to a grocery store. So it was like the most amazing thing that, that I've probably ever been awarded. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was when I really had this aha moment. Like I was first like, what if every fourth house in my neighborhood was designed and managed like this? You know, I was feeding myself and four families around me 50% of the produce that they were eating for the year for a 12-month period. And that has some pretty serious economic and health and lifestyle, uh, you know, positive consequences as a result. And then I really started thinking like, oh my God, you know, what if a landscape business actually provided this service, then yeah. you're, you're actually getting something that makes your life better. That's got to be more relevant and more 
uh, you know, recession proof than a Moblo and Go service. Mm. I don't understand why it isn't already just sweeping the world because it's so logical. Yeah, it is so <laughs> logical and it addresses so many problems or areas that I see as problematic. The, you know, the use of chemicals, the attracting and supporting of insects and wildlife, the, you know, just the communal atmosphere of our neighborhoods. If everybody's out in the front garden, you know, harvesting and deadheading and chatting with each other, you have a whole different world out there. And we're all eating better. So life is, life would be good. Life would be so good. <laughs> I get to experience this, you know, daily. Well, I'm not home every day because now I travel a lot. But when I am home, that is precisely what happens. Neighbors from all over congregate their children. I mean, I have a an enormous force of small hands helping me manage this property. Yeah. And it, it gives us a sense of place and a sense of season and a, a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, it's amazing how many times people won't know the people that live around them. <laughs> but there is nothing like being out in the front garden working with your flowers or pruning or, you know, and I don't have a lot of edibles at this point, Brie, but boy, am I motivated to add them. Uh, but I have a lot of natives out front and I'm out pruning and I'm pruning my salvias and it smells good and people walk their dogs by and they start chatting with me and then, you know, all of a sudden we're exchanging wine and it's, it, it really, it is this beautiful bridge for so many more positive interactions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That should be the motto of the green industry. Yeah. Yeah. Be Not the bridge. low maintenance. It should be bridging you through maintenance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so let's get to, I want you to walk us through the book and the different sections by walking us through your garden, because you used your garden as the kind of prototype for what you are trying to teach people how to do in bite-sized, manageable steps, stages, and zones. So describe exactly how you define foodscaping, and then take us right into those zonings of your area, whatever your area might be. Okay. So I define foodscaping as the integration of edibles in traditional landscapes, containers, basically anywhere that you can grow. So if you can grow a petunia, you can grow a peanut, essentially. And <laughs> I think the world would be better off with fewer petunias. So, <laughs> I can't yeah, disagree. I can be a little bit snooty about that. <laughs> and it's actually, and I, I sometimes people get a little offended by this. And I just certainly don't mean it in an offensive way, but I, I like to call foodscaping, you know, permaculture for yuppies. <laughs> it's basically permaculture just boiled down to where it's um, simplified in the sense that, you know, you, you, maybe you need to keep your job and you have a family to raise and gardening isn't going to be the only thing that happens in your life, but you could do this one thing and practice this and as your life changes, you know, you can keep adapting to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had taken permaculture classes. I love practicing permaculture, but I found the term to be a little polarizing, particularly here in the Southeast United States, which is a different experience. And um, I, 
think there's just so much practicality in the approach of land use through permaculture practices that I wanted to make it accessible to people. So the zones are a direct reflection of a permaculture practice where you're basically taking into account what resources you have and then planning your plant design around most access to least access. So like for me, zone three, which I talk about in the book, are the outer edges of my property where it's difficult to get water out to it. And, you know, it's full sun. You know, the, the soil hasn't been improved as well. It's more planted with, you know, really hardy native plants, perennials, shrubs, trees, um, things that create habitat. But as those plants grow, I have less and less square footage to grow food. And that's the intention. Um, zone two brings you in a little closer and you can grow vegetables and, and food crops uh, that have a not maybe the need for watering every single day. I mean, I, tomatoes are like the, the biggest divas on the face of the earth. <laughs> and I wouldn't suggest planting a tomato in a zone two um, simply because you have to walk farther to get to it. You have to, you know, you have to be intentional about getting out to that area and making sure that things stay watered and, and that you harvest appropriately. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Bree Arthur is an enthusiastic and encouraging evangelist for transforming any landscape into a food-producing oasis. Her first book was Foodscape Revolution, and her second book is Gardening with Grains. She is a food-growing force. We'll be right back for more. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, when I riffed off of Bree's hopes for children and their experiences in the first podcast break, and I asked you to send me the titles of your favorite garden plant nature-related children's book, now I'm going to follow another thread, or grain, of this conversation with Bree. Bree loves grains. Toward the end of our conversation, she recommends that we all try to grow some barley and some rice. Her second book is entitled Gardening with Grains, and she is sometimes known as the crazy grain lady. Somewhere toward the beginning of the conversation, she used the word ingrained, and I thought, wait, what is the relationship between grain the hard, dry seeds of grass and other flower-making plants, such as wheat, rye, barley, rice, etc., and the grain or texture of wood or even meat. In these senses, grain is apparently from the Latin granum to the old French grain. And then there's the concept of being ingrained, firmly fixed or established difficult to change, and worked into the fiber of a thing, which comes from the Middle English meaning to dye, with color-fast dyes such as cochineal, to change forever the color and fiber of a thing. And I think of the age-old power of grains that form bread, that form and connect cultures, corn, wheat, rice, the very mainstays of foodstuffs staving off hunger for large populations. And I think of the grain of trees, the decades, centuries, and millennia sometimes written in those very grains. And I think of us. How do we set the grain of us? 
How do we feed, nourish, cultivate, and ingrain ourselves and each other with a literacy and a value system and compassion and generosity akin to the grain of nature's garden around us? With what values and literacies do we want to ingrain the next generation? And that brings me to Matt Fiddler, my producer. When it came to writing the podcast breaks for this episode, I had to wrestle the book Foodscape Revolution back from Matt because he and his wife had borrowed it. I wanted him to talk a little bit more about why. Well, we just bought our first home ever, finally not living in an apartment, and I finally get to garden, and I'm working for this gardening show, <laughs> and, and hearing from amazing people all the time, and I hear from Bree Arthur, and and I always had this thing, do I want an ornamental garden, or do I want rows of beds? And she brought this whole idea that you have both, and they're actually both better if you do it. Like, I mean, this book is full of such cool ideas like using hydrangeas to give your support for your tomato plants or use uh, garlic and ginger as ground covers and so it's like not only is it this beautiful plant but then you eat it afterwards and yeah so I'm, I'm taking this book back with me uh, after we finish this today so just for fair warning. And Matt and his wife are going to ingrain their entire neighborhood with this passion, this shared food. Hmm. Now, back to our conversation with Bree Arthur, whose whole life is ingrained with a sense of positive foodscape mission. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. The concept behind Bree Arthur's Foodscape Revolution might just alter how you see the landscapes of your house. When we left off in our conversation, she was in the midst of describing the various zones around your house that correlate to the different kinds of food crops you might want to grow. As we come back, she's sharing with us the tenets of Zone 1, the closest to the home. Zone one is where, you know, I would say congregate your things like a zucchini. You know, I always say you have 15 minutes between harvesting your zucchini or it turning into a baseball bat. <laughs> you need to have it someplace close that you walk by every day, you know? And even then we still get baseball bats sometimes. How does that happen? You know, I've, I'm notorious for like leaving giant zucchinis on my neighbor's doorsteps and not ringing the doorbell. <laughs> So, you know, the idea really is to, you know, especially in living in the suburbs, you might not have a big enough property, especially in new developments, to be able to have a distinguished segregated vegetable plot. Mm -hmm. Plus, in that segregated vegetable plot, it's harder for you to rotate your crops because you have a limited amount of square footage. But when you have all of the available square footage in your landscape to be able to draw from, it's really easy to not plant the same thing in the same place every year. You just have so many more opportunities for, you know, moving it around. Um, so, you know, I do it with, I even do it with hanging baskets and window boxes and, you know, certainly container plantings. And I think that's always a good place for people to get started because it's a little less intimidating and, 
Um, you know, you kind of understand how you put annuals into a pot, you enjoy them for the season and food crops are the same cycle. So there's no reason that they can't all be together. They need the same sun, the same fertilizer, the same water, you know, it, it's, it, they all grow really well together. So I don't really understand why we've taken this notion of like farming and try to apply it to the way we grow vegetables in our home gardens, because we're not farmers. If you aren't using a tractor, you do not have to plant your food crops in a straight line. <laughs> you know, if you're planting with your hands and you're harvesting with your hands, you can plant it in any arrangement that you want. Right. right. <laughs> so, and I think, you know, we use words like permaculture or, or foodscape or, or they aren't brand new ideas that are, you know, out of the blue. They are codified articulations of what are common sense concepts based on where you live, what the climate is, what the resources are. They, you know, they are looking closely and observing the patterns of nature and putting them to best possible, most efficient use. And I think the one of the great points that you make over and over again throughout your your work, your um, you know, your advocacy online and social media, in your presentations and in the first book is, where where do you naturally walk? Where do you go? What do you see? Like start there because that's going to be the easiest for you to remember to water, remember to pick, remember to – and plant things where there's water because yes. if you don't have water close by, you are going to find yourself running up against a wall all the time. You'll be – on your way to work and you'll notice in the far edges of your, you know, garden, yard – that something is wilted and you will be late and you can't get water over there right now because you have to get the jug and fill it at the kitchen sink and run it over there. Don't set yourself up to fa for failure like that. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's the thing. Like everybody has a hose spigot attached to their house. <laughs> like right. Your, your easiest place to access water is going to be that foundation landscape right around your house. You know, it's, and I mean, I always just tell people, like, just plant your bed edges. Oh my goodness. Bed edges are like the world's greatest opportunity. First of all, there's no place that's easier to get to because you can literally walk next to it. Right. You know, you don't have to do a yoga pose. To <laughs> and, and, you know, I totally, because I'm a gardener, I, you know, I am literally out there every moment that I can be. I deal with the same problems as everybody else. And, you know, browsing mammals are a huge problem and they just keep getting worse. And so I started employing something that my grandparents did. So my family is, are all immigrants from Czechoslovakia and landed in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, you know, didn't have, they were farmers where they came from, but, you know, worked in factories when they came to the United States and, they gardened, but they didn't have a lot of land. And so I remember my grandfather growing arugula around the edges of his beds because it would keep the rabbits from eating the plants behind it. Ah. I had no idea how cool my grandpa was. <laughs> actually, I did. I, I actually really did have, I did know how cool he was. But I mean, I, I quote him every time I give a presentation now because, you know, we can grow so many practical things like arugula, 
or peppers, potatoes, basil, garlic, onions, things that you eat on a regular basis, you can plant right along your bed edge and they will deter above ground mammals like deer, rabbits, groundhogs, and the garlic and onions will help deter in-ground mammals like moles and voles. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you can grow a meaningful amount when you are using your bed edges. If you walk around and count your steps along all your edges, it's shocking how much square footage is available. Right. And they're beautiful. I mean, this is one of the things that your photography really brings out uh, so, so nicely. But, you know, to put a hedge of basil, and of course, there are all kinds of ornamental basils, but we're talking about the culinary basil is a beautiful plant. You know, you've lined a uh, a hydrangea bush with some basil. Gorgeous. The, the arugula is a beautiful, broad leaf, dark green. It is a, a lovely contrast plant next to that basil. And then, of course, all of the garlics and onions are alliums. Like they have ornamental cousins that we use all the time. The edible versions are also beautiful. Exactly. And, you know, I love to share food miles statistics in my presentations. Right. So it's something that we as a nation don't talk about enough. And, you know, with garlic, every sunny landscape in America could grow garlic. You know, literally every sunny landscape. Right now, 90% of the garlic that's sold through American grocery stores is shipped all the way from China. So if that was just the one thing that you grew and you changed that one habit at the store, you could make an incredible difference in changing that one food mile statistic. And think how much garlic we all use every year. Exactly. I mean, well, I will tell you because I have very enthusiastic young helpers that uh, we plant on average 850 cloves of garlic a year. So everyone in our neighborhood gets homegrown garlic. That is awesome. <laughs> that is so great. And then you have the garlic festival there at, in your in your cul-de-sac or whatever. Uh, exactly. We actually have a whole anti-vampire routine <laughs> that as we're braiding it and flinging it, you know, on, on rafters of back porches. It's very entertaining. <laughs> that is awesome. So we have the zones. We have the the looking at your landscape in a new way and trying to see opportunity where we once saw nothing but static space being taken up by things we don't even care about. If you were, I mean, you are in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am in interior Northern California, you you can't get too much different than that. But this is one of the joys of edible plants is that they are by and large annuals. And so you just need a long enough season and enough sun to be able to try some of them. Start, give, give listeners, no matter where they might live, a couple of your first suggestions for best potential success, Brie, because we want people to get this green thumb experience that you describe. If you were to say, I want you to try these two plants in your zone three areas, these two plants in your zone two areas, and these two plants in your zone one areas, what would those be? Okay. Oh, this is so exciting. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think you just made my, like that emoji where your head is on fire. I just got that. <laughs> okay. Zone three. Oh, it's hard to pick, but I'm going to pick two that might seem a little out of the blue, but they're not. Zone three is a dry zone. Barley, 
because if you drink beer, you might as well grow barley at least one time in your life to understand what one of the really important ingredients is. Okay. Um, and sesame. And sesame is something that I don't know why it's not just like a, a common summer annual because it is so, so good. It's so drought tolerant. It's super heat tolerant. I was introduced to um, sesame from being at Monticello and figured if Thomas Jefferson grew it, I should too. <laughs> and I have been endlessly um, not only amused, but just impressed with Sesame's ability to handle uh, no irrigation. You know, we're like in the hundred, more than hundred degree days for like, I don't know, two or three months each summer here. Sesame is really, really well adapted and the hummingbirds like to pollinate it. So if you're into hummingbirds, you really should grow sesame. Uh, white seeded sesame is a white flower. Dark seeded sesame is a pink flower. And they are basically foxgloves that bloom all summer long. Wow. Um, and you started those, are you, you started? From seed. Okay, from seed. And where did you source your seed, Brie? Um, Baker Creek okay. Heirloom Seed has them. Okay, okay. Yes, and that's my sort of go-to source every time I need a, every time I need a plant fix, you know, Baker Creek always has it for me. Right, and I'm sure <laughs> other places like Southern um, Exposure Seed Exchange might have it, and I can list some um, other resources as well, but I just wanted an idea of where you had gotten those to start off with. Cool, yes. okay, Barley Sesame. Okay. All right. Zone so for two. Zone two. Yeah, zone two. Um, okay, so I grow a lot actually in my zone two. Right now I have a mix of tomatillas and cane sorghum mm. and and sunflowers. Obviously the tomatillas are really practical. Uh, I would say tomatillas and peppers are in that same category where they don't need to be watered every single day, or at least not in my climate. Mm -hmm. um, they really like the hot, they like the hot weather. They, they do like our long growing season and I'm able to make, you know, a year's supply of salsa verde from, you know, growing tomatillas every year in my zone two areas. The cane sorghum is worth mentioning. I've never grown it. I've never had a successful experience actually pressing the canes and making sugar. I've tried, but I don't have the right equipment, but the sorghum seed feeds like every bird in the world. Yeah. So if you want to grow your own bird seed, you should seriously grow cane sorghum okay. or grain sorghum, any sorghum, frankly, for that matter. Sorghum is a wonderful plant and it also really helps like break through hard packed soil because hmm. it has really deep, thick, wiry roots. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you are gardening on hard pan clay, if you did a cover crop of, of sorghum, and then follow that with a legume, you would basically have great soil to then be able to start planting in. Okay. So just what farmers do, but we don't ever apply these practices to our residential landscapes. Right. And just to reiterate, zone two, to give people a little bit of an orientation, if zone one is the area you're foundation planting right around the house and then just out from there. So like you're walking to the front door, the foundation planting between the sidewalk to the front door and the house itself, that's zone one, and maybe the area immediately across the sidewalk on the lawn from that from that foundation planting, that's zone one. Zone two is then 
kind of if you live in a suburban house and you have the foundation planting, a sidewalk, and then a front lawn, that interior portion of the front lawn, that is zone two. Exactly. I like to say zone one is only one hose. <laughs> zone two <laughs> is two to four hoses. Okay. And zone three is anything big, bigger than that, which is basically you're being crazy trying to use hoses to irrigate. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Know? Good. Um, and then one more thing on the sorghum. Am I right in thinking that it could seed itself around and reseed next year? So that's something to both uh, take use to your advantage and pay attention to. Yes, I will say I have never had sorghum reseed, but I have certainly had amaranth reseed. Right, so right. Um, it's nowhere near as aggressive as amaranth. Good, okay. But I also have a really vigorous bird population that literally right now – I can look out, I'm looking at rice right now, and there are cardinals eating the rice right off of the plants. <laughs> so <laughs> That's I have awesome. really well-trained birds that know that this is their like homegrown sanctuary. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so great. That's great. Okay, zone one. Zone one. All right. So I just mentioned a great zone one plant that's like off of everyone's radar, but rice. Rice is the coolest plant. And you could totally grow it in pots with no holes. So, you know, those are really easy to come by. I mean, the box stores are constantly selling you pots that your plants are going to die in because they don't have any drainage. Right. Rice is one of the few exceptions that, you know, you can get a big pot with no holes, fill it with compost. Don't use potting soil because that'll dry out too, too frequently. Uh, and then just direct seed your rice into it. Rice needs water. It does not have to be grown in a patty, but it does need water. So it's a very much a zone one plant. Same thing with tomatoes. Tomatoes, and I have a, a deep adoration for tomatoes. Uh, but God, they can be jerks. Oh my gosh. I think <laughs> like, tomatoes are one of those plants that'll give you bad self-esteem, you know? <laughs> so that should not be the plant that everyone starts with. You know, like everybody should start with garlic and potatoes because you can buy both of those from the grocery store and plant them and you won't fail like tomatoes oh my gosh you, you, you know like you cross your eyes at them and they will it's crazy <laughs> <laughs> oh. so you know zone one i also would include the, the obviously things like squash and zucchini not only because their fruit grows at such a rapid rate but because you need to be looking out for those you know, those squash bugs that bore into the stems and make your plants wilt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly eggplants kind of fit into that category. Again, because of fruit size, you know, sometimes I don't harvest my eggplants at the right time and I really regret it. Mm -hmm. it it's funny in the winter, you know, if you live in a climate where you can grow, you know, 12 months out of the year, I, you know, I concentrate things like, like lettuce and broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower in that zone one area. And then I direct seed mustard greens, kale, arugula, uh, collards, because, you know, I live in the South. And I do those in the zone two areas. Um, they're direct seeded that way, and they look more like kind of a meadow, mm -hmm. essentially, where I put all the seeds together in one bag, shake it up, and then distribute it. Nice. And I keep more of the heading vegetables into the zone one range, mm -hmm. uh, because then I have more control over their spacing. 
And all of those leafy greens that you just mentioned, uh, when when you do accidentally or intentionally, let's just say intentionally, let them go to seed, they are beautiful and they attract uh, all kinds of pollinators. And, uh, and then they go to seed, which you can collect, and most of the greens will come true. Exactly. And honestly... Why wouldn't you want to let some of them go to seed right. to feed those beneficial insects? It's, I think the last 30 years, because of the way the landscape industry has evolved, and landscapes are different than gardens, and I hope that one day we will find a happy medium between the two, but the landscape industry has made things very sterile. And, you know, for 30 years, people were afraid of bugs and you had the orchid man come and spray toxic things all over your garden. And that was normal. And I'm so grateful that we're living in a time where that's starting to come into question Mm -hmm. Um, because there's really nothing logical about that. Mm -mm. Like you said, those greens, they're beautiful. Um, When the sun shines through them, it's like a rainbow. It's just... I don't know. It's one of those things where you where you try to step back and not be a control freak about every little thing and allow your garden to evolve and you get so much more from it that way. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Bree. Your enthusiasm is contagious and I just appreciate your work in this world. Thank you so much. That feeling is so mutual, and I genuinely appreciate the opportunity to share my ramblings with your audience today. (laughs) Bree Arthur's The Foodscape Revolution shares garden advice about growing with ecological, economic, and nutritional sensibilities. She's a passionate leader in the foodscape movement, a model of community development that incorporates sustainable local food production. She speaks on a wide variety of horticulture topics around the U.S. and has served as a correspondent on the PBS program Growing a Greener World. Join us again next week for a deeply poetic look at the garden and its many gifts to us in this season of thanks. Poet and gardener Ross Gay shares with us his powerful voice and reverence for the life of a garden and its gardener, communal, individual, spiritual, and earthly. The many ways people cultivate their places moves me every single day. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, Bree Arthur's photographs, tips, and resources are as effervescent and uplifting as she is. Check them out and channel the energy into your foodscape goals. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer, Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.